Hello, I'm Gemma Ware, one of the hosts of The Conversation Weekly. We're going to do something a bit different with the show this week. For the past few months, I've been working with some colleagues in the UK on a three-part series about dementia and the brain. The series is now live via our podcast, The Ant Hill, and now we're going to run it through The Conversation Weekly feed as well. Today you'll hear the first episode, and then the second and third episodes will follow in the feed in the coming days. This is a bit of a personal story for me too, so I do hope you find it interesting. My grandma was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's when she was in her early 80s and moved into a care home a few years later. She lived in Canada and I was in the UK, so I didn't get to see her very much. Every time I did visit... I remember how sad it was to see how much she'd declined. After my grandpa died, she withdrew into herself even more. I remember sitting with her in the care home. One of the things that seemed to bring her out of her shell was playing old records from the 1930s and 40s. She could still remember many of the words. What stuck with me was how sadly inevitable the whole situation seemed. She was told she had Alzheimer's, and we knew her dementia would get worse, and it did. A diagnosis of dementia is terrifying, but it seems to be something that once you're told you've got it, you and your family are just expected to live with it. Because dementia is often seen as a part of growing old. There are strategies of trying to bring people with dementia or Alzheimer's out of themselves for brief moments, But back then, for my grandma, any hope of a cure or of any treatment seemed out of reach. And they still were when she died nearly a decade ago, in 2013. So a few months ago, when I found out an investigative team at The Conversation were preparing a series looking into how dementia worked in the brain, I was curious. What were people researching now? Were we making new discoveries? Is there reason for hope? In this series, my colleague Paul Keevney is going to walk us through some of the answers to these questions. Hi, Paul. Hi, Gemma. So, Paul, you're an editor at the Conversations Insights team, and you folks came to me a few months ago to say that you've been talking to a bunch of researchers about their work on the brain and specifically about dementia. Yeah, we wanted to examine what was happening in the field of dementia research. So we set about finding researchers looking into the causes of dementia what we know about how it's working in the brain. And that led us to other academics who were trying to help family members of people suffering through it. Okay, and this is the first of three episodes where we're going to hear from some of these researchers that you've been working with. So where are we going to start this series? I think a good place to start is with a study that's been around for decades. Uh, It has had access to unparalleled levels of data about its participants compared to other research out there. And that's because of how and when it started. It's the oldest of the British birth cohorts. It's the longest continuously running study of its kind in the world. In its early days, about 5,000 babies were chosen for further examination. 
and researchers have been tracking them ever since. And was started 1946, just literally months after the end of the Second World War, when the government was anxious to rebuild infrastructure and grow the labour force. And they were worried at that time as to what might be putting people off having children. The birth rate in Britain had been steadily declining since the mid-19th century. A physician called James Douglas trained health workers to conduct a survey. To a garden, interview all mothers who gave birth in one week of March 1946 across the whole country, asking about the health of the infants, about the cost of childbirth. So that was the beginning. Then, in 2016, when the babies had grown into 70-year-olds, the researchers selected a smaller group just over 500 of the original study participants to take part in research on brain ageing and dementia. And to get a scale of the amount of data they're collecting for the research, I went to meet David Ward. Hello, on the dot, two o'clock. Hi, nice to meet you, I'm Paul. <laughs> David Ward is now 76 and lives on the western edge of the Peak District in the UK. As one of the members of the 1946 cohort, David says he's one of the most studied people on the planet. He leads me upstairs to an office where he has piles of documents and data which the study has collected on him over his lifetime. Copies of surveys he and his mum filled out, pamphlets, questionnaires, old photographs and newspaper reports, even birthday cards which participants received from the study team that give updates on each year's research findings. I gather some stuff together. That blue box is usually full of it. They start from the very first day of his life. The pram and the cot cost £17, four shillings. I was born at £8.12 and I was a caesarean. The data collection grew, as he did, charting every milestone. When I was just six... I never wet the bed by day or night. <laughs> Small triumph. I first gained control of my bowels at 14. Months. Months. <laughs> uh, oh, and so it goes on. Um, What's it, how does it feel to sort of have access to this kind of amazing data on your, your own life? I think it's absolutely astonishing. This level of information exists for the thousands of people who are in this cohort study. What age are you for this one? 2015. When I oh, 2015. Been, um, 69, something like that. I've been feeling relaxed, often. I've had energy to spare. Yeah, this was a long time ago, energy to spare. <laughs> that's all gone. And then they're asking about exercise as well, how much it did. Were you truthful? Um, uh, more or less, yes. I was just looking at it again this morning. I, you know, what sort of bread do you have? Circle all that apply. Brown, granary, wholemeal. We're middle class, we must have all those. <laughs> I eat fruit most days. OK, Paul, so why are the researchers asking David to write down everything he was eating in minute detail? This is part of what makes the study so special. It has documented people's health and habits over their lifetime. Cohort members filled in questionnaires and were regularly visited by nurses taking key readings like blood pressure. It's near impossible to get an accurate indication of all that after the fact. It sounds like they've got a huge amount of data. Yes, yes. And even the smallest bits of information, like your bread choices, your fibre intake, could prove useful. And so, as well as all that, when it comes to the brain, what kind of things have they been measuring and tracking from all of these participants over the years? 
So they've also tested cognitive function throughout their lives. As Marcus told me, that's particularly useful when it comes to understanding dementia. In any dementia research outside of a lifelong cohort study, you just wouldn't have this information. For obvious reasons, the earlier measures of cognition going back into childhood are impossible to estimate retrospectively. We can ask people life histories, we can ask people their medical histories, obviously with their permission we can look at people's medical records and fill in quite a few gaps. What we cannot do is estimate cognitive function. But in the cohort study, the researchers were able to keep checking the memory of the people as the years went by like one test in the 50s that David and Marcus remember from slightly different perspectives. In our mid-50s, a nurse came and did all the usual tests, and one of the things she said was, I'm going to give you an address, and then I'll ask you it later on. And I couldn't do it. It's what's called prospective memory, which is remembering to remember. And we ask people to write down a name and address on an envelope. And we say to them, remember that, because we're going to ask you about that later on. But then we distract them. And then just out of the blue, a bit later on, we said, oh, by the way, do you remember that name and address on the envelope? And then I think they must have done it again when we were about 62. And I was determined this was never going to happen again. And I got it right. And I remembered it for, oh, about 10 months afterwards. Which is extraordinary what the brain does. My name is Linda Clark. I live at 59 Meadow Close, Milford, Surrey. And that was the name and address we had to remember. And then again, we'll move into a different cognitive test. In this case, crossing out P's and W's in a whole array of letters on a page as quickly and as accurately as possible. And when that's done, we say, oh yes, by the way, do you remember that list of 15 words? It's called delayed memory, and it's that delayed memory that's particularly vulnerable to decline if people are at risk of dementia. So, Paul, we've got this bigger cohort of people who've been doing these tests over decades, for 70 years, but then a smaller group were also chosen for this particular dementia study, right? Yes, and David is part of that smaller sub-study as well which is called Insight 46. I should say he's sharp and he's showing no signs of dementia. Well, that's really good to hear. But why is he in the group then if he's not showing signs of dementia? Well, one of the strengths of the study is it's gathering data on people, whether they have signs of dementia or not. So it's not people with existing symptoms who signed up for it. The researchers are checking for any subtle changes in the brain that cause symptoms associated with dementia. Ultimately, they hope to see if there's a way to intervene and to stop the brain changes from progressing into something much, much worse. Going back to my grandma, Paul, she was told that she probably had Alzheimer's. But my family were never actually really sure we could say with certainty that that's what she had or whether it could have just been another type of dementia. So tell me, what actually is dementia when we're talking about it in this way? Dementia is a cognitive impairment severe enough to interfere with everyday activities like planning meals, managing bills and simple tasks like housekeeping. It can sometimes be accompanied by things like depression and paranoia and aggression. And what's the difference then between Alzheimer's and other types of dementia? Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. 
And it's important to say that scientists do not know with certainty exactly what causes it. But the leading theory for Alzheimer's is that it's caused by the abnormal buildup of certain proteins in and around brain cells. Um, One of those proteins is called amyloid. Clumps of amyloid form these hard deposits called plaques, which gather around brain cells. Now, there's another protein called tau, and these proteins form things called tangles, which form within brain cells. And it's this abnormal buildup of proteins that can cause nerve cells to fail and ultimately to die. And as the nerve cells die, different parts of the brain shrink. Okay, so how do you tell then if somebody really does have Alzheimer's? Well, an Alzheimer's diagnosis um, is mostly clinical uh, and must show decline in at least two cognitive areas. So things like memory, language, attention or problem solving. They can test for certain things these days. So MRI and CT scans can see brain shrinkage. And things like lumbar punches can check spinal fluid for abnormal proteins. So it seems like there's quite a lot of things now that people can do to test for for, for Alzheimer's or dementia. And is is this what Marcus and his research team are then doing with people like David in, in this study group? Exactly. But let's remember, it's a human study. So it will have human challenges. As David found out when the time came for him to go into an MRI scanner. I've always been claustrophobic. So uh, I thought, well, this is important. I will do it. I really will. And I got on the bed and I thought, yeah, that's that tube. It's an hour and five minutes and it's very noisy. But I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then they put some sort of frame over my face, a yellow mesh with a mirror in it, which is supposed to help give you a greater sense of space. And it just freaked me out completely. And I fled and then went downstairs and rang my wife and said, come and find me, I need a drink quickly. David jokes about this, but he's totally committed to the cause. From his childhood days, leaving class to do the tests, through to today, with the many different parts of the dementia study that he does participate in, he's keen to help in any way he can that sense of making a contribution. And I think um, I still feel that, and I think lots of the other members do. Paul, you said that the researchers have been following David and the other 500 people in this cohort study for nearly six years now, but they've also got all this other information going back to 1946 that they can also use to understand dementia. So what are they finding out when they put that all together? Well, there's a lot, but I guess the key findings so far are about when those amyloids we were talking about earlier start accumulating in your brain, how important your childhood education is to your brain health later in life, and just how crucial your heart health is to your risk of dementia. Jonathan Schott works with Marcus, and he's one of the study leaders. He's a professor of neurology at University College London, and the Chief Medical Officer for Alzheimer's Research UK. We've been able to make some significant contributions in our understanding about how some vascular risk factors can influence brain health. So high blood pressure, 
obesity, cholesterol, diabetes and so forth. And one of the great advantages of this incredibly rich life course is that we can look at some of these factors throughout different stages of life. But very interestingly, that it's your blood pressure earlier in life than you might have expected that is having its maximum influence. And so it's actually your blood pressure between the ages of around 36, which when it was first measured in 50, which seems to have maximum impact on your brain health in your 70s. To pick up on that, Gemma, that means people should consider getting their blood pressure tested in their 30s and 40s. That's a very pointed thing to hear, Paul, because I am in that age bracket, as are you. I know. And it's because high blood pressure can be a key indicator of dementia risk. If we can treat those blood pressure issues early on, it could reduce that risk. And it's these types of findings that can help public health efforts going down the line and in preventing dementia. In the last few years, there's been lots of studies which have been synthesised together to suggest that up to 40% of dementia could be preventable worldwide. There's a strong genetic component, but there's quite a lot of things that we can do whilst we're going to need new treatments and new ways of diagnosing people early and screening and treating. We also need to do what we can right now to prevent dementia, both in this country, but also around the world. We need blood pressure control We need to think about other factors that are relevant with diabetes and cholesterol and exercise and air pollution and keeping people physically active and mentally active and education, which we have also shown that your education as a child has impact on your cognitive function age 70 as well. Just a bit on education. Can you just explain that to me in terms of what that means when you're looking for these kind of signs? Absolutely. So one of the huge advantages is fairly unique things around the world with this particular study is that these participants had their cognitive function measured three times during childhood the first at the age of eight they were taken out of school and had some tests done so we know what their cognitive function was at that age but added to that we can also look at their education how well educated they were which we have recorded and we can also look at things like the jobs that their parents were doing to give us an idea of the socioeconomic class that they were brought up in and what we can show is that their cognitive function at the age of 70 was independently related to all three of those things so their intelligence as children their education and their parents' socioeconomic class. So what that says to us is that how intelligent you are at the age of eight is probably fairly genetically determined. And if you were bright at the age of eight, then you're probably bright at the age of 70. But also that there was an independent association with how many years of education you had. That's something that's modifiable. If we had better education, then people's cognitive function at the age of 70 would be better and likewise the environment that they grew up and and whether people were growing up in poverty as well something we can do about so again this ties into what is fixed and what is something that we can do things about paul i have to say that as someone in my late 30s even though my own grandma had dementia. I'm, I'm not really someone who spends a lot of time thinking about this and about my own future and whether I'm going to get it too. It still feels a pretty long way off. 
But what John seems to be saying here is that, yes, what happens in your life does matter to your chances of getting dementia. So is this the main area they're trying to focus on in the study about what people can do to minimise the risk of getting dementia? Yes, that's, that's part of it. But they're also building into a body of research that doctors may be able to tap into in the future, specifically around the ability to test and screen for things like Alzheimer's. And what kind of screening and testing are we talking about here? Well, this comes back to the amyloids again. Remember, they collect in the brains of people who have or are developing Alzheimer's. That's one of the things that John and Marcus are focused on and which we may be able to screen for in the future. I think one of the most exciting things that we've done is to contribute, and I'll say we'll contribute because science is rarely done in isolation, but working with colleagues who have developed new blood tests that can detect amyloid. And we were able to apply some of these, and this will be the first time it's been done in a population-based cohort like this, and show that we've got really pretty good accuracy for detecting who's got amyloid in the brain based on these expensive and quite complicated brain scans via a simple blood test. And if we are moving towards this phase around screening, clearly what we'd like to do is to be able to screen people very easily. And probably the easiest way to screen people is by blood tests. So that's been a very exciting finding. Something that's really would have been unheard of two or three years ago is that there's a real prospect for, for blood tests to be able to detect some of those proteins. Most experts agree that when we have new medications for Alzheimer's, they will have maximum benefits early in the disease and preventing the onset of cognitive decline would clearly be preferable than trying to slow or halt memory decline that has already started. So blood tests could be a game changer. Currently, there are no licensed treatments to help people once they do have Alzheimer's. So health recommendations say not to screen for amyloid as a prevention because at the moment we can't prevent it. So we're not talking about screening now, but we're envisaging a time when one would want to do screening, when one does know what the outcomes are, when there are treatments that are shown to have benefits that one can roll out at scale. So that's what we're aiming towards in terms of the amyloid testing. I'm interested in this question about treatments, Paul, because I remember when my grandma was first diagnosed in the early 2000s, she was put on an experimental treatment, but it was inconclusive and then stopped. But more recently, I've been hearing about new drug breakthroughs, it seems like every few months, that could possibly treat Alzheimer's. So should we be getting excited about these? Well, you're right. New drugs and treatments are on the verge of FDA approval in the United States. The FDA is the American Food and Drug Administration. One of them that's been getting a bit of coverage in the past few months is lecanemab, an antibody that finds and removes amyloid. It would be the first drug to help improve the symptoms of Alzheimer's by slowing the disease. But the only data we have at the moment is from the drug maker's press release. So it's early days. So still a way to go. But how close are we to people actually being able to take this drug? Well, even if the FDA gives the drug approval, which may happen as early as January because it's on an accelerated pathway, other countries would still need to go through their own approval processes. And do we know whether this will actually work, this drug? Well, as I say, it's early days. We still don't know the effectiveness. But John told me he likes to see researchers 
push the boundaries of dementia and Alzheimer's research. So being realistic, we're talking several years before any treatments that would come through for people with Alzheimer's disease, and then they would probably be very, very select group of individuals. That, however, would have massive impact, just a chink in the armour. There is still a nihilism that dementia is not treatable, etc. Anything that just opens up a chink of possibility, it means people are more enthusiastic Drug companies are more enthusiastic. The first cancer treatments were crude and only worked with small numbers of people. And now we're offering personalised therapies for different cancers. So you can see how important that is. Then moving forward in terms of everyday practice, this would mean huge changes to the way we develop and change dementia care in this country. If you could look 10 years, 15 years into the future... What are your sort of hopes going forward for the study in terms of development? The aspiration for this study is that it will be the first ever cradle-to-grave study and that we'll follow people through their natural life course. If we look forward for the next 15 years, these individuals will be into their early 90s. The sad inevitability, of course, is that a lot of people will pass away during that period if you think what the natural life expectancy is in this country and unfortunately that quite a lot of people will develop dementia. Now my hope is that within that timescale we may have new therapies and new treatments that can help and of course these individuals will be very obvious early adopters of new therapies as and when they come in. We need as a minimum to know who is going to develop these problems so we can see whether our predictions are correct in due course. Around a third of the individuals in Insight 46 have kindly assented to post-mortem brain donation, so that is to giving their brains for research. And we already have had a few people in the studies who've died and who have donated their brains. And that's an extraordinary and valuable resource to sort of the ultimate arbiter of what brain pathologies there are is when we can actually look at the brain under a microscope. And there are also more studies coming down the line. Other birth cohorts that started later in the UK. So we're in active discussion now with the 1958 birth cohort about repeating some of these assessments when they turn 69. Do we find the same things when we've got a larger sample, when we've got people who've lived through different historical events who've had different exposures the 1946 cohort were born at a time of rationing the 1958 work different smoking changes different ethnicities of group in the 1946 birth cohort were all exclusively white and caucasian do we find the same changes in those cohorts as well so it'll be very nice then the natural experiment is to continue the same sort of studies in the next generation while still following the original generation through to see what happens Back in David Ward's home, one of the world's most studied people reflects on the legacy of this study and his role in it. I believe you're one of the participants who've sort of donated your, your brain to study afterwards. Well, that was, I was reminded of that, and I, I'd completely forgotten that. <laughs> so, I mean, that's very good, isn't it? You know, yeah. I've given my brain, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Um, I'm sure they may have a record of it somewhere and uh, they'll know when I die. 
I keep saying that when I die, the coffin goes down the aisle of the creme or possibly a church. There'll be the National Survey with its clipboards following me and just checking on the size of the coffin, how expensive it was, how many flowers there were on top, how much it had cost, whether the mourners were all wearing black, you know, all this stuff. They love it. Good on David. Seems like he's always thinking about the science and his contribution to it. But listening to him kind of jokingly talk about the future mourners at his own funeral, it made me think about the families here, the families who are affected by dementia and this horrible disease. And for them, the search for answers and treatments is crucially important. Well, the effects this disease has on families is something being looked at by another team of researchers we spoke to. And we'll be finding out about that for the next episode of Uncharted Brain. The family members, their motivation to be interviewed was not only to tell their story, but also if their story could help others. Okay, that's it for part one of Uncharted Brain Decoding Dementia. A big thanks to Marcus Richards, John Schott and David Ward for talking to us about their study. You can read an article by Marcus and John on the conversation and we'll put a link in the show notes to this episode. This series originally ran on The Anthill, a podcast from the Conversations team in the UK, which runs in-depth series drawn from academic research. Tiffany Cassidy is the producer of Uncharted Brain and our sound designer is Eloise Stevens. Alice Mason does our social media and our designers are Zoe Jazz and Gita Zimmerman. I'm the executive producer for the series. If you like what we do, please support The Conversations podcasts by going to donate.theconversation.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio or on Instagram at theconversation.com. Thank you for listening and do stay tuned for part two of this series in the Conversation Weekly feed.